right. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab it and turn in it to Psalm 130. Um, On behalf of Kent and the student ministry, I would like to apologize for the lack of babysitters this weekend. Um, All the girls are at Majnik, which is our our kind of regional, uh, Presbytery-wide, but also outside. It's a huge retreat, honestly, at the um, Young Life Camp in Rockbridge. Um, And everyone who went this year was a teenage girl. Uh, There may be a a video of them lip-syncing something that may get shared around. Who knows? Uh, it's very impressive, but all that's to say, they had a great time, are having a great time, and, and, uh, and we're, we're just thankful for the work of those that put that on. We, if you've got kids and you're new to this, there's, a, there's two retreats that are called Majnik, and you're like, why is it called Majnik? Because it's kingdom backwards, right? Backwards kingdom, <laughs> a little hokey, but it's what it is. Um, there's one in the fall, and that, that one is for middle school kids, and then there's one in the spring, and that's for high school kids. Um, and, and we, so if you've got kids in that age range, next year you'll know what, what to look for. Hey, if nothing else, they're gone all weekend. So I can't say my wife and I haven't enjoyed that. Anyway, um, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn it to Psalm 130. We're just going to jump right in uh, because, uh, yeah, we've got a lot to talk about. So let's go ahead and stand. That's our habit here in honor of God's word. Um, and as I, as I read, I just want us to remember that this is not something that the church picked for itself. This isn't like something where we went, hey, we, we like these writings and not others. These ones suit our fancy and these don't. This is God's word and God's word lays claim on us. It, it claims us, not the other way around. And so let's hear it in that way. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities." grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we need you to speak. Holy Spirit, we need you to work in us. We've come into this room with lots of different things. Some of that's anticipation, some of it's boredom, some of it's uh, self-righteousness, some of it is just deep brokenness, and we, no matter where we are, we just need to hear from you, and so we ask that, Spirit, you would soften our hearts, take away those things that would distract us. And instead, uh, give us grace to be able to, to see and hear and receive Jesus. And Lord Jesus, as you have promised, as we lift you high today, we ask that you would draw all people to yourself. For you are good, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Man, it is a different congregation during the sermon, isn't it? Like, that's a lot of children. It's a good problem to have. My wife was telling me that when she went to go pick up the palm fronds uh, in, in, uh, in Grottos, that um, the, the women there were arguing with her over how many kids are in our church because she was picking up 50, 50 fronds. And they were like, no, but how many children do you have? She's like, more than this. They're like, no, that's not possible. How many kids, you know, praise God, right? Praise God. Um, anyway. 
how low have you ever gone? And by that, I don't mean, I don't mean depression, right? Some of us struggle with that. I mean conviction. How low have you gone? Like this experience can be different for different people. Um, I, I, but what I'm ultimately getting at is whether you have ever cried out to God for mercy. And when I say cried out, I don't mean like, yeah, I know I should confess my sins or yeah, I, I, I know I, I feel a little guilty. Maybe you're reluctantly going to God because you know you're supposed to. I mean, crying out. Have you been there? Maybe not. I mean, I don't necessarily think it's like something necessary for faith. Like, uh, but but I, we will get to, I think, an importance and the importance of it. You know, some describe something like that, that, that powerful conviction of sin, that crying out for mercy. Some describe that when they first come to faith, right? But what about continuing that? How does that work? How is that supposed to go? What about when you're on the journey? And that's what this psalm gets to. And so what we're going to see this morning um, is that the safety that comes for us to be honest, the safety in our honesty comes from promises. It comes from promises. As always, if if you're a note taker, you can grab that outline in your bulletin. If not, just leave it. So let, let's dig in. So remember, and this is super important. So, so if you, if, if you are new to the faith or maybe you're new to like reading, reading the Bible, like you, you've been a Christian for a long time, but like consistently reading the Bible, this is an important thing, right? And that is that context matters. And there's two kinds of context that you can get when you're reading the Bible. One is actually in the passage itself, right? And this is the kind of context that would tell you that Jeremiah 29 verse 11 is not about God giving you a good life. Okay? I know the plans I have for you was said to those who were going into exile, going to despair because they thought God had abandoned them. Not, don't worry, I've got your life settled and everything's going to go well for you for the rest of your life. That's just a verse taken out of context, right? The context of the passage is that. But there's another kind of context, and that is the structure of the book as a whole. And remember what we've been saying when it comes to these psalms, the psalms of ascent, psalms 120 through 134, that they are um, psalms that, were, that come in clusters of three. They've been arranged in those clusters, that the first one in that cycle deals with a, a, um, a, a sign of distress, something that's distressing you. The second is God's provision along the journey. And then the last one is the, the arrival, right? Just like the people who would go and, and travel from their home to Jerusalem for these feasts. So that means that if that's the case, this Psalm, Psalm 130, is the second in this, in this cycle that we've, we've started last week. Okay, why is that important? Because this is not about coming to faith. This is about faith on the way. This is about faith on the way. Okay? Now let's see how that looks. Look down at verses 1 and 2. He says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Okay, so when he says out of the depths, here's something you need, we need to remember when it comes to the Old Testament. The Old Testament is primarily, exclusively, written by folks who lived in a desert. 
And when you live in a desert or a a desert-like area, the sea, the ocean, is a very mysterious place and a very scary place. In fact, most of the time, if you, if you pay attention, what you'll see, and this happens in the Old Testament, in fact, it happens in the book of Revelation, when evil things come, they come out of the sea. The monsters in Daniel come out of the sea. The monsters in Revelation come out of the sea. And that is because the sea in the Old Testament is a place of chaos. When you live in the desert, the ocean is a place of chaos. Sometimes when you live on the coast, the ocean's a place of chaos. Right? There's no controlling it. There's no understanding it. And to, to be in the depths of the sea was seen as being as low as you could possibly go. If you're familiar with the Bible, think of, think of the prophet Jonah, right? In the depths of the sea, and he related that to being all the way down into the point of death. And so this is not like, hey, I'm feeling a little low. I, I'm in a desert place. Clearly not a desert place. I'm in the depths. I'm as low as I could possibly go. This is, this is a place of of chaos and darkness. And from that, he says, um, hear my cry to you. Out of the depths, I cry to you. And that word in the original has this connotation of pleading. It's a, it's this, it's a, um, a crying out is not simply like we're talking. It is a relational connection. And so it's something that you have to have between persons, but it is a, it is, it is a plea. It is a Begging is probably the wrong word, but you get the idea. It's, it's, it's on that spectrum. And he says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Again, super important. We've said this over and over. When you say the word Lord, all in capitals, you're talking about God's covenant name. The name that he gives to his people it brings that story of redemption, that story of his promise to make things right. And so this is harps on what I just said. This is not an unbeliever. This is someone who speaks God's name as someone in promise-bound relationship with him, in covenant with him. He is the Lord. He is Yahweh to this person. This is one of God's people. This is not a conversion experience. This is the experience of a believer, of someone who is already God's, one of God's people, as they experience their own need for mercy. Right? mercy though. That's, that's an interesting, uh, at the end of verse two, right? Be attentive to the, to the voice of my pleas for mercy. That word mercy is actually not in the original. It's kind of been added in. Um, and you're like, Whoa, that's sketchy. Why would you do that? Well, because that's what the, that's what the intent of that is. It ends with the words, plea, be attentive. Let your ears be attentive to my plea. The plea is clearly for mercy. So you know, that's why the translator would add it. And for those of you who may be uh, disturbed by that, just, just remember, like, all translation to some extent is interpretation, right? To take one language and to move it in another means you have to have some understanding of what you think that those words mean in that language, and you're translating it into another. Uh, it's, it's, it's very faithful, um, but, but that is, if, if you have a translation that doesn't have that word in it, that's why, okay? Now, let's, let's get to the question. Look down at verses 3 to 4. Verse three first, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? Now, I know that you guys in your day-to-day, you use the word iniquity a lot, right? Like, like we use iniquity, like, you know, that person who cut me off, he's full of iniquity. Like, we have that. That's, that's what goes on. Of course we don't, right? Of course we don't do that. The word iniquity is not a, a synonym for sin, okay, in particular. It's a synonym for guilt. And that's different, right? 
we have, we do sin, like we are, we are sinful, but iniquity has to do with guilt. And guilt is something that derives from those things, not, not a synonym for them, right? So to mark iniquity is to keep a record of your guilt, of what you are guilty of. And the psalmist is saying, if, if you did that, God, if you kept a record of my guilt, of anyone's guilt, who could stand before you? Who could stand and, and be confident before you? And the implied answer is, of course, no one. No one. And that is because the Bible is very clear. There is no one good enough, no one moral enough, no one religious enough, no one right enough, no one to stand before God. We are guilty. Not just in what we do, but in who we are. And we are guilty not just once. <laughs> in verse 4, that makes verse 4 even more interesting. Look there if you can. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I want you very, uh, right now, listen close. I want you to pay attention to the order of that. Look at the order of that verse again. With you there is forgiveness so that you might be feared. Remember what we said about fear a couple weeks ago if you were here? That the fear of the Lord is not being afraid. Although there is a measure of that in, in as much as it's, he's God and we're not. There is a measure of like, ooh, don't step on Superman's cape, right? Like you don't do that. But instead what it primarily speaks to is, the, is, is worship, of trusting, of faith. So let's look at that order again. With you there is forgiveness so that you might be worshipped, so that I might be able to have faith. This is huge. The purpose of God's forgiveness is to reconcile us to him. The purpose of his forgiveness is to bring us into a relationship where we are worshipping him. And that is the exact opposite of every other way of looking at how, how we're supposed to relate to a God right? This is one of the biggest differences between Christianity and other religions. The biggest differences between true biblical Christianity and the things that kind of pass for it. In God's economy and in the economy of this psalm, his work precedes our response. In other ways of doing things, we worship him, we obey him, we give money to him, and we do all things so that we might be forgiven, right? But in this, and in the, in the scriptures, in, in, in the Bible, in, in Christianity, and all of this, it's, it's the other way around. You're forgiven so that you might actually worship him. You're forgiven so that you might be brought into relationship with him. You're forgiven so that you might be reconciled to God completely the opposite of what we normally think. He does his thing and it leads us to do ours. But remember, this psalm is a song of a believer, which means we should expect a certain posture. So let's look at that now. Look down at verses five to six. Love that this whole psalm kind of breaks down in two verse chunks. It makes it so easy. Uh, he says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning and repeat, okay? So I wait for the Lord. Now, the word that's used here for wait and the word that's used later for hope are actually synonyms. 
So when we say wait, what we don't mean is wait around. Okay? What he means is not, I'm sitting on my butt, just watching the clock. Like, where are you at, Jesus? Like, where are you at, Lord? I don't, I don't get this. What it means is that there's a, the, whatever wait means, it has to be synonymous with the word hope. So let's keep going, and we'll, we'll get to that. He says, in his word, I hope. So what word? Right? I mean, this is the Old Testament. This guy's writing a psalm that ends up in the Old Testament. So what does he mean by his word? I mean, we would look at it and go, well, we, we would mean the Bible, right? And certainly they had, they had certain books that at this point in, in the history of, of God's people, they had, they had certain books. But what is he talking about? Well, specifically, hoping in God's word in this context is his covenant, his promise. And if that's not familiar with you, just, or to you, let me, let me refresh or maybe um, help you understand it for the first time. When God created the world, he created it good, and everything was good and right and perfect, and we were placed in that world to be his uh, agents, like the, the ones through whom his loving authority would be, would be exercised over the world as his image. But we betrayed him. We turned away from him. We believed that God wasn't for us, that he, he did, we couldn't trust him, that we could, we could be and needed to be independent of him, right? And the Bible calls that sin. And when we did that, the world broke. We broke, the world broke. We changed. We were guilty of betraying him, but also we became independent, which means we are now bent away from him. Whether in our morality or immorality, we are bent away from God, doing it for our own purposes and our own reasons. And the Bible calls that sin. But also, uh, we, we became not just guilty. Well, I said that. We became not just guilty, but actually we became changed. But God right there made a promise, and he said, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to make what you did right again. That was his covenant. Theologians call it the covenant of grace, and it plays itself out throughout the Old Testament. So when he says, in his word, I hope, this is pointing to God's covenant promise that I'm going to fix this. I will forgive you. I will redeem you. I will make this okay. And so when he says, in this word, I hope, we need to understand we will say this, I will say this every time the word hope appears in one of our passages, that the word hope in the Bible does not mean what we mean when we say hope. When we say hope, we mean wishful thinking, right? I hope Washington has a better season this year than last year, is wishful thinking, okay? <sighs> Probably not real. But hope in the Bible is living in light of something that is going to happen. So why does the psalmist say, I'm going to, out of the depths I cry to you, have mercy upon me, I've blown it, but in your word I hope. It means I know I can bring this to you and find forgiveness because of what you've already promised. Has it been accomplished yet? Well, for this guy, no. This is pre-Jesus. But he knows God is true to his word, he's going to do it. And if he's going to do it, then I can live in hope of that. Does that make sense? Living in hope is not living, hoping something happened, like wishing something would happen, being optimistic. It is living in the now in light of something that is coming, but not here yet, but you are so certain of it that I'm going to live as if it's here now. This is a posture of hope, a posture of dependence, a posture that's based on God's promise of reconciling us to himself. And, that's, and then he gets to this repeated phrase, more than the watchman for the morning more than the watchman for the morning. What's that about? 
Okay, again, we tend to not connect with some of these metaphors, some of these images, because of where we're at technologically. In the ancient world, the nighttime was not a fun place, right? Dangers come in the night. Whether that's from attacks, a watchman is someone sitting on the city wall watching. You can't see anything in the dark. You don't know what's coming. But man, when the morning comes, you can find relief. And so the more waiting, hoping in the Lord, waiting for him, all these things, more than the watchman for the morning means I will find more relief from his forgiveness than the watchman would by seeing, ah, the sun's up. Finally, I can see dangers coming. Okay? Now, let's look at the promise. Verse 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord. There's that word again. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. Okay? Hope in the Lord. This is not a, um, this is a command. Hope in the Lord. This is not a, this is not a, a suggestion. This is a call. This is a, a, a call to do something. Hope in the Lord. In other words, place your faith in him. A call for dependence. Only God can bring forgiveness. And he has promised to. And so live in light of that. And, and he says, because, hope in the Lord, because with him there is steadfast love. Okay, steadfast love. Some of your translations, if, if you have, like in the ESV, if you have an ESV Bible, you'll see that word, the, that pairing, steadfast love, in the scriptures a lot. Especially in the Old Testament only in the Old Testament. You'll see it a lot. It is a translation of a Hebrew word called hesed. Okay? Actually, it's hesed, but, you know, that makes me uh, mess with my throat. So hesed. And hesed is, steadfast love is one way of translating it. But when we say love, we mean affection. We mean romance. We mean some feeling in your stomach at times like but this word specifically means it, it is exclusively used of word of love that exists in a promise bound relationship whether that's marriage or um or the kind of love that you're supposed to have that the king is to have for his subjects because there are covenant promises there or that god has and why is that important because promises are not conditional they are unilateral And so a steadfast love is saying, I will be faithful and true to my promise regardless of what you do. I'm going to be faithful to that. You're going to blow it like crazy, but I am steadfast in my love. Another another way you could translate it is loyalty. I'm loyal to you. So with the Lord, there is loyalty. There There is a steadfastness. There is faithfulness. Unconditioned devotion even. And then he says, and with him there is plentiful redemption. Okay. Redemption in the Bible is not a religious term. We use it in a religious way, right? Have you been redeemed, right? We, we use that a lot. Redemption is a word from the, from the uh, world of slavery. To redeem someone is to purchase them out of their bondage. Why does that matter? Because the Bible is very clear that when we broke, when, we, when sin first entered the world, uh, we were no longer, we weren't, we, we weren't neutral. We became by nature independent of him, which means we no longer have, there's no choice. There's no like, I can do things that aren't going to uh, 
be opposed to God. There was, there was simply what, um, what, the, what the theologian St. Augustine called, um, it was no longer possible to not sin. That we were in bondage to it. There was no freedom of the will. Like we, we were doing only that which our nature demanded. And for God to redeem us means that he is purchasing us out of that. And he redeems us out of that bondage. But not only is it just redemption, it's plentiful redemption. Plentiful redemption means that, I mean, think about this. Again, this is a purchasing metaphor. This is a, a money metaphor. And so for there to be plentiful redemption is, is like exorbitant excess. There's more than I need. This redemption is even more than I could possibly need. And, and so that gets it not, not so much an issue of quantity as it is God's attitude. And so that begs the question, how many of us in this room, if you're a Christian, okay, if you're not a Christian, just listen in. But if you're a Christian, how many of us in this room, when we, when we blow it, we approach God as if he's yelling at us, right? What were you thinking? Why would you do something like that? You know what's right. Get over here and do it. Why are you over there doing that? How many of us approach God like that's, that's his attitude? For God's redemption to be plentiful means that he is extravagant, excessive even. God's redemption is not limited it is not scarce, and it does not run out. It is plentiful. And that brings us to verse 8. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. That creates the confidence of what God will do. This is not an if. This is a certainty. God will redeem Israel. And this is the promise that was made true in Jesus because Jesus is God's redemption. He is the one who purchases us out of our bondage, out of our slavery. And he did that by dealing with our sin. He bought our forgiveness by receiving our judgment. And his work is more than adequate. And his work is more than adequate because he knew exactly who it was he was paying for. You can't surprise him, you can't befuddle him, and you can't outsin his work. Now, I want to bring this home uh, first this morning, talking about walking in repentance, because this psalm as a whole is a psalm of repentance, okay, repentance. It speaks of conviction, it speaks of our need for mercy, it speaks about our acknowledging our guilt, and about our hope and assurance of forgiveness. But, and here's the important part, it speaks of this, as I've said before, but I'm going to hammer it, both in the context of this psalm and the structure of these psalms as a whole, as the experience of those who are already part of God's people. So I ask this, when is the last time you were undone, broken? before God's word. Look, I know we easily read this as the kind of initial experience of someone who comes to faith, but that is not what this is. This is not someone who is first seeing their need for a savior. This is someone who is still seeing their need for a savior. This is someone who already knows that they need a savior. So Christian, when is the last time you were simply undone? When was the last time your eyes were open to something and you realized you were in the depths? 
When is the last time you cried out for mercy? Not did the like, Lord, please forgive me, I did blah, blah, blah. Uh, I know it was wrong. What am I supposed to say now? Have mercy on me. I know that Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Amen. This is crying out. This is crying out. This doesn't mean, ooh, yeah, Jesus, I had a bad thought. I don't mean that you had your eyes open to your little sins and your little need. This is not this. This is an experience of knowing you have a great need that needs a great Savior. When is the last time? Some of you are thinking right now, I mean, Rick, I don't blow it that badly. Yeah, I know. So when's the last time your self-righteousness broke your heart? When's the last time you saw that as ugly as the sins of others? When's the last time you were grieved by your willingness to see yourself as better than others and as less needy, broken by your trust in your right methods and your right morals instead of in the Lord? See, the psalm makes it clear that repentance like this is not abnormal. This is kind of like, yeah, this happens. This is normal. So what does it look like? I mean, it's like, okay, well, Rick, I don't, I don't even know. Like, what does that mean? What, do you, what does that mean? Well, it looks first and foremost like hating your sin. And by that, I don't mean hating you. There's a difference. Hating you is shameful, and that's really about you. Hating your sin is about something you did, and it's about being grieved by your own proclivities. Let me give you an example from my own life. When I feel like I'm being exposed and I, I feel scared by being exposed, what I generally do is I turn on those closest to me, okay? I turn on them because I'm afraid that they're, they're, they're going to harm me, they're going to do something against me, and all of the history that I have with them is kind of tossed out the window. And I hate that in me. It is ugly and it is hurtful. I can't stand that I do that. So first, it means hating your sin. Second, it looks like being honest about your sin. And I mean being honest, like not mitigating, not excusing, not blame shifting. Understanding that no matter what's going on, no matter the circumstances, no matter your story, that you are responsible. It's not your parents' fault. I know they, were, I know they did wrong, okay? So are you. You're doing wrong too. Save for your kids' counseling. Like you're, they're not, it's not their fault. It's not the fact that you had a hard day at work. It's not, it's on you, bro. You did it. It is knowing that you need mercy. And this is hard. Listen, I know it's hard. I know it's hard. Because in that moment, what you want to do instead is when you're being exposed, what you want to say is, oh yeah, well, let's talk about you for a minute. Like, let's talk about what you did the other day. Let's talk about how you do things. If we want to shift the blank, turn the camera around, like, whoop, all right, I feel better now because I'm angry and it's on you. Like, that's, that's what we want to do. But unless you are honest about what is going on, you can't really ask forgiveness for it. And you can't really see change happen. Third, it looks like placing yourself in a humble position. I know, like I said, I know that when we get confronted, when we get exposed, what we want to do is instead turn the camera around and point at others and go, no, 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 no. Let's talk about you for a minute. And those things may be true, but repentance, the kind of repentance shown here is about owning you. It's not about them. It's about owning yourself. 
What did you do? What have, what have you, what, where are you at? It is a humble posture that acknowledges that you do not, listen to me, listen, oh gosh, we got to get this one. You do not deserve forgiveness. Forgiveness is never deserved. It is a gift. It is never deserved, whether it's coming from your spouse, your kids, your, your parents, your friends, or the Lord, it is never something you're like, well, I think I deserve to be forgiven for this. Really? Why? Is your betrayal not that bad? I mean, it was a betrayal, but it wasn't that bad. I mean, I just, I really think you should forgive me. Isn't that your job? Forgiveness is never deserved. It is always a gift. It is a costly gift at that. So hating your sin, being honest about your sin, and placing yourself in a humble position. And look at me. This is not optional. Let me just be honest with you. This is not optional, and this is not strange. <laughs> this is not a one-time thing. And so I'm, I'm here to tell you, like, if you're not finding yourself here, I'm not saying all the time. I'm saying if you're not finding yourself here as a Christian, I'm not saying you're not a Christian. What I am saying is I'm, I'm guessing your relationship with Jesus is floundering a little bit. Because so long as you have a little bit of need, you will only need a little savior. But so long as you understand that your need is great, that it is huge, then you have a huge need and you will find yourself a huge savior. But you have to admit that it's huge first. Like I said, I'm not saying you need to walk around groveling in the dust. We're going to get to that in a second. I'm saying Paul himself, the apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament said, no, no, no. And he had great thoughts and he was about as good a resume as any of us would want to line up with except Jesus. And he said, the good I want to do, I don't do. Instead, it's the evil that I hate. That's what I end up doing. A wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death. Praise be to God through Jesus Christ. Right? That, that's his line. And so if it's been a while since you've experienced this, Maybe it's time to ask the Spirit of God to show you what's really going on. Or maybe, a little riskier, maybe it's time to ask those closest to you. What do you guys think I need to repent of? (laughs) Yeah. You need to be honest about who you are. But how do you do that? Because that idea is terrifying, right? Because all of us think that if we're honest about who we are, the people that we're honest with are going to use that against us. That if I'm honest about who I am to you, that's going to mean that, well, my, my image of being a pastor is going to go down. Maybe it's, maybe it's like you're going to lose respect for me because you thought, aren't you supposed to be up here? No, no, by the way, no. I, I'm just a dude, okay? I talk a lot. That's really, that's it. It's a dude who talks. That's, that's, my, that's my thing. You think maybe they're gonna, it's going to come back to bite you. Well, how do, we, how do we do that then? How do we be honest about ourselves? Well, how did this writer do it? He was able to do it because he was walking with a particular person. Look at what this psalm says. With you there is forgiveness so that you will be feared. In his word, I hope, with the Lord there is steadfast love. Do you understand what he's saying? What he's saying is that God, when, that, that God has said, I know. And you're like, oh, 
out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. He's like, I, I know. Like, I, I know who you are. I know what you've done. I know how broken you are. I know how bad the problem is. In fact, I know it way better than you do. Like, you're surprised by this. I'm not. I already knew this. And I promise to rescue you. I promise to be compassionate with you. I promise to make my grace be plentiful to you. Do you know that God? Is this, is this the God you know? Or is he standing over you saying, why do you act like that? How do you not know what I expect? What is wrong with you? I can't believe you would do that. Is that who you're following? You want to know one way of discovering if that's the case? If that's the case, those are the kind of things you think about when you see others going wrong. And by others, I mean, sure, other adults, but parents? If that's what you're thinking when you see your kids going wrong? Hmm. If there's no compassion in your thoughts when, you're, when your kids are going off the rails? I'm not saying you can't get a little like, ugh, ugh. But I'm saying like, do you think God expects you in all of your brokenness to have behavioral perfection? Well, no, I don't think he would expect that of me. Is that what you expect of your kids? So that when they don't, you're enraged? Like, what, what, what is it that goes on? I mean, look at me. No wonder it's so hard for you to change if that's what's going on. No wonder. No wonder you want to hide from him. You want to hide from others. You want to hide from yourself because that is not the God of the Bible. Walk away from that dude. That pastor just said that. Walk away from that God. That is not the God of the scriptures. That is not the God revealed in Jesus Christ. The God presented here welcomes this kind of prayer, welcomes this kind of honesty because he already knows it. You can hope in his word. You can live as if those promises are real. And you can do that because we look at Jesus who lived perfectly and died sacrificially and rose victoriously for you. His redemption is plentiful. And some of you are thinking right now, Rick, not plentiful enough for me. Really? You, out of all of those created and redeemed by Jesus, you're the one who is shocked by him? You're the one who's like... Jesus is like, man, I didn't see that coming. You're the one who can stand at the foot of the cross and go, yeah, you know, Jesus, I don't think this is quite enough. Listen, cheer up. You're nowhere near that special. Okay? You are really broken, and so am I. But God in Christ has shown you his steadfast love. He has shown you his plentiful redemption. You can be honest about yourself because you are safe if you've trusted in Christ. There is no fear for those that live at the foot of the cross. You're safe because he has promised to forgive. He's promised to redeem. And he's promised to love you. Would you pray with me? But oh, Jesus, how easy it is to forget those promises how easy it is to retreat into our Sunday best 
and to think that what you want from us is the same thing that we generally want from us, which is to look pretty, to be nice, to not really have any problems. And so we praise you for those times in which you make it so abundantly clear that we have problems. I praise you for that in my own life, and I pray for it for the lives of those in this room. Because with you is plentiful redemption. With you is steadfast love. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be okay with not being okay. And knowing that because of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will not stay that way. Give us grace to believe, grace to trust, grace to live this. We ask in Christ's name, amen.